Hello, and welcome to Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. A series of conversations with innovative educators at colleges and universities across the country and around the world. This podcast is produced by faculty and staff in the Center for the Advancement of Teaching and Faculty Development at Xavier University of Louisiana. And now, let's talk about teaching, learning, and everything else. Hello, this is Bart Everson. Our guest today is Justin Ross Hillard. This is a recording from his presentation to Dr. Mark Stoll's class, The Ideal Society. Mr. Ross Hillard graduated from Xavier University of Louisiana with a BA in theology. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Justin Ross Hillard. Uh, I am the principal at the NET uh, Charter High School, Central City. We are currently the longest running alternative high school um, since uh, after Hurricane Katrina. And um, and we uh, started out as one school, we replicated into two schools and we acquired another existing alternative high school that became one of our schools last year. Uh, actually, in 2020 during the pandemic, um, they, they became one of our schools. Um, <clears throat> I serve as a, a board member for uh, the New Orleans Public Library with uh, one of my emphasis there being on how the library assists in early childhood education uh, and preparation and community interactions. I uh, am a pastor of seven years, but I've been a minister for just about 20 years. Uh, I am a husband and a father of three uh, all school age kids. And um, I don't know what else is important. I think that's all that's important. All right. Um, that's me. Good morning, everybody. Let me just uh, get you started with explaining to, excuse me, explaining to our students what what your school is all about because it's uh, very different. All right. So, um, so our high school is an alternative high school. So we are a place that specifically is designed, like our charter is written that we um, specifically serve as students who have had a really difficult time in traditional schools, students whose lifestyle is not centered around simply being a student. So we have parents, students who are parents, we have students who work uh, and live adult lifestyles, even though they're still teenagers. Many of our students are overaged for whatever grade they may be in. Uh, so I do have some high school uh, students who are over 19, 20, 21. I also have uh, overaged middle school students. So sometimes you'll have seventh graders who are 15 or headed towards 16, uh, seventh and eighth graders. So we have them as well. Um, the other thing is, is that we really design ourselves to meet kids where they are. So we have a lot of students who have transitioned out of incarceration or have were, were dropouts for a period of time. And now they want to do school, but they need to be able to do it in a way that's more convenient for their lives. So our students typically only go to school about five hours a day max, but we, uh, we have a three semester school year so we run in the fall, the spring, and also the summer as the entire school year in an effort to, um, to be flexible enough for students to meet students where they are. 
all of our all of our uh, staff are aligned around restorative justice and implementing restorative practices within our school building. So when we look at discipline, when we look at our, our relationship uh, to our students, um, we don't do so on a on a linear line of these are the school rules and this is how it needs to be, but rather we use restorative justice and restorative practices um, to guide us first in working really hard to build a relationship with our kids, to authentically be curious about who they are, get to know them. And then through those relationships, we focus on what are the norms of this community. So we look at our school as a community We know that the kids are coming to us, our students come to us outside of this community. So there are a lot of norms and a lot of ways of doing things that are different out there than they are in here. So we work really hard to help them to reorient themselves about what happens within this community. We we, um, have a lot of uh, accountability around uh, how we approach infractions in the community. We do that largely by emphasizing that relationship demands conversation. And so even if we're building relationship or we have established relationship, we are building ourselves towards being always able to converse about what has happened in our community and how it's affected um, not only the people involved, but the community at large. And so all of our efforts around school discipline, around repairing harm that's done, which we define harm as harm is an unmet need. And so when an harm is, is introduced into the community, there's a need that was missed that showed itself. And so now as a community, we have to work um, to meet the need or fulfill the need, and that will ultimately reduce harm. And so uh, that is a snapshot of kind of who we are. Okay, great. Now, can you give us maybe an example of uh, an incident where you implement restorative justice and how that works? I have a wonderful example that it, uh, just that happened this semester. So um, I had a young man who walked past a classroom, uh, recognized the teacher in the room, walked just in the doorway, so just in the threshold to speak to the teacher. Well, a student who was sitting by the door who has an issue with proximity. She, she doesn't like when there are people that are hovering over her or really close to her. But this, uh, this other student didn't know that. Uh, she looks up at the student and starts questioning him about why he's standing over her. He responded to her that he wasn't standing over her, that he was there to talk to the student. This turns into an argument um, that spills into the hallway. I come out of my office uh, to, to find out what's going on. Um, the students begin to, to escalate like they're, you know, posturing to fight. Maybe not. I pull the young lady into my office. We try to de-escalate. It, it doesn't really work. So I, at that point, um, my team and I had contacted her grandmother and we were getting ready to take her out of the building. Well, as we're leaving out of the building, she escalates to the next level. She wants to fight this young man and becomes physical with my staff. At that point, I had to use uh, a CPI hold, which is crisis prevention intervention, to to calm her down or at least get get control of the situation, to which she pulled out mace. And so um, in using the hold, I was able, my team was able to get the mace from her 
And in the process, she bit me, right? She, and when I say she bit me, she like clamped her teeth down into my hand and bit with all of her might. I started bleeding. We were able to get her under control. Her grandmother came, sent her home. Now in a traditional school, if you assault a teacher, that's an automatic uh, expulsion hearing. So you'll be put up for expulsion. Uh, either you'll be expelled where you can't attend any school or you'll be expelled where you can go to another alternative school. Yes. A question. Um, do they in, let's say in a, a, a regular school, would, would they not call the police and have her arrested for assault? They absolutely, they absolutely would call the police, have okay. her arrested and go for expulsion. So I said, so I also, I was agitated because I was bit, <laughs> had to go get my hands sewed up and I had to get HIV tests and, and all kinds of shots and all that. But when I was really thinking about it, this young lady has a record of being suspended in multiple schools. She was expelled to my school. So the idea of expelling her again actually doesn't help her, right? So what I did is I, um, I pulled all of my staff together who works with her, whether it was teachers or other support staff, and I asked them to all write letters to her about what happened that day, whether they were involved or not, how it made them feel, and then really emphasize all of the positive characteristics about who she is and how much she means to our community. We called her and her grandmother in we sat in a circle and each of us went around the circle and read our letters. The interesting thing that I did is I asked them, once you read your letter, I want you to bring something to actually put in her hand so that when she leaves this circle, not only does she understand that she's forgiven, that we want to continue to work with her, that we're not going to count this against her, that we all also believe that she has the potential to be greater, but I want her to take something away that she can always remember that we had this conversation. And so they brought poems, they brought postcards, they brought pictures of her at different times, including myself. Now I'm the victim, right? But I even did it. And by the time it was over, um, obviously the whole room was in tears. Her grandmother said that in all of her years, she had never seen anything like that before. We all hugged and the student was, was welcomed back in our community and since then has not had any further issues. That's what restorative justice looks like. It is holding the person accountable. So she definitely had to, to sit in front of us and had to hear how what she did affected us, but it is also creating a space where, where, where restitution through forgiveness and an action. So in her particular instance, we wanted her back into the community because she's been out of communities for so long that that's kind of her norm. But we don't want that. We want her back in the community because that's how we do long-term accountability. So that's what we did. That's an example of something we, we've done just this semester. Wow. All right. Uh, are there any questions that some of you may have? So while you're thinking, just demographically, um, yeah. our school is 98% uh, African-American. Over 77% of our students qualify for free uh, or reduced lunch. We have um, over 40% of identified um, SPED students. So these are students who have uh, IEPs for 
uh, mostly behavioral issues, no like severe physical impairments or anything like that. Most of it is behavioral. Most of our students, uh, and, and I think I think about 60% of our students are identified as trauma uh, affected. So that means that they either are have had firsthand experience with trauma or they've had the first level of secondary trauma based on uh, exposure. So this could be abuse. It could be uh, death through um, murder, major loss, um, like a fire or natural disaster, those kind of things. So, so these students are identified as, as high-level students who require a lot of support. All right. And so because they're on different schedules, you, you're, you teach from what time to what time during the day? So we go from eight to five. We run five 100-minute blocks. Um, we have a 40-minute lunch in the middle of the day. Students uh, typically go from eight to one and then one forty to five o'clock. Some students will come in in between there. So a student might start mid morning or late morning and then run through the end of the day or start just after lunch and run through the end of the day. I think we spoke about this a couple of years ago, but you were talking about the fact that Katrina uh, children, children born during Katrina, we're going to have some serious issues. So our, our, our current 17, 18, 19-year-olds are the children of Katrina. So much so that when Katrina anniversaries come, come by and we see pictures, um, we recognize our students. Uh, and many of them were at the convention center and the, the Superdome. So they have that, that in their memory because they were three there were two, there were four, but they still deal with a great deal of trauma and anxiety as a result of just the shuffling and the fear that's attached to, you know, just a storm. Uh, we had the tornadoes on Tuesday that were coming through. And so all night, Monday and, and the morning of Tuesday, they told us that the storms are coming. It was going to be bad. It was a tremendous amount of rain. And so when we came in on Tuesday morning, um, we were already on alert that our students would be very anxious, that there would be a lot of extra energy, nervousness, preparing ourselves as adults to anticipate that our kids would be like that. And it certainly was that all morning students came to school, but they were very on edge and edgy and frustrated and we know that that's the anxiety that is carried over from the trauma of Katrina because none of them, uh, very few of them received counseling or other types of mental health support, their parents either. And so um, they still live very much in um, the remembrance of the, of the trauma. And when those moments happen, like there's a storm, even during a regular rain, if it, if it gets dark, and it starts thundering and lightning, we have to pretty much stop our classes and do something that's centered around social and emotional health so that the students do not get very anxious because when it does that, they start asking to leave. They just want to leave the building because they don't want to get caught in a place that they feel like they can't get out because they've done that before. Right. Also, um, what about the, the COVID 
issue we've had a co last couple of years. How did you guys navigate that? Because I'm sure a lot of your students don't have computers or don't have internet access. How did you guys deal with that? COVID was horrible, first of all. So it was March uh, 15th, I think, or Mar March 14th when they closed schools. So within the first four days of them closing schools, we took all of the computers that we had inside of, inside of our school because we were pretty much one-to-one -one, um, with students to computers. And we split our uh, staff up into teams and we took computers to every household that did not have one. Okay. Um, so that was quick surveying and calls. We found out who didn't have it and then we took computers to them. Uh, it took us about two weeks to get hotspots to kind of close the internet gap. And, and so that was our next round of distributions, but we were uh, online with our students um, within five days of closing uh, in-person learning. Wow. We then had to, uh, and we even, we even did phone uh, conference calls over phones until kids were able to get online. Um, what we learned really quickly, though, is that because of the students that we intentionally target, virtual online learning really isn't their strong suit. So we had to figure out a way to, to be able to service our kids effectively in the way that we needed to. So there were loopholes that NOLA Public Schools left out there for us that we could not have uh, a regular school day, but there was never a rule that we couldn't pull small groups of students into the building to provide work for them. So that's what we did. We, we had some staff who stayed home and did virtual classes. And for the students that we really knew either had really stressful home lives and it was not good for them to be home or they, uh, they just weren't going to do work over the computer, we welcomed them into the building. And so we had a, we had a crew of staff who put themselves at ex extra risk to make sure that we could service our kids. So we never stopped. We never closed our buildings. We continued to figure out ways to serve them. And we did that um, all the way through the beginning of the 21-22 school year. Well, we uh, did it in the 2021 school year. And there were a couple of times where they told us we could come back, but then they closed us down again. That happened again at the beginning of the 2021 school year, uh, just before the hurricane. And, and so we, we've just been trying to keep them in person because we know that these are students who already weren't attending other schools. And so it's always best for them to be present. And so, um, you know, a small crew of us said that we will, we will put ourselves at risk in order to serve our students effectively. And a part of that is still restorative for us, that we are creating a space for your worries and your fears to have a place to go where you can discuss them, you can talk about them, and you can work with another partner to figure out what's the best way to resolve or to answer the need that needs to be met. All right, going a little bit back to uh, restorative justice, your staff, I've only been there a couple of times, and your staff is just incredibly energetic and uh, welcoming. And what kind of training do you guys have to go to to, to do this? I mean, it, it seems 
totally contrary to everything I've ever seen in a public school, you know, when I went to and all that. So what kind of training do they have to go through? So first of all, our hiring process is really, really tight and tough because we really seek folks who are mission-minded and, and, and are willing to align around a mission. The most important question that we ask folks once we really introduce them to who our school is and what we're about is what, what is your why? Why are you here? Um, and, and none of that like surface level bull about, you know, I just want to help people. That, that's, it's got to be more than that. And we've been tremendously blessed to find people who, um, who not only want to help others, but they want to support their own growth by being in, in community and in close community with people that sometimes don't look like them, that come from economic levels that are different than them. And so, uh, so that's really powerful. We do a lot of training around who our school is and who we are not to make sure that, that folks understand that like we are very well aware of the challenges that are in this particular work, but that's also a part of our intentionality as to why we're here. Like we are purposefully seeking the kids who fight a lot in the other schools or they don't attend school at all and they're very truant. And so that, um, so that kind of reframing uh, helps um, a lot of folks to be involved and committed to this work. The other thing is that when it comes to like education, we understand the state standards that we have to teach into and make sure that kids are, are trained to meet, but we teach whatever we want. We allow our teachers to pick their own curriculums. We, we tell them, here are, the, here are the credits that you need to teach, um, that you need to award this semester. But we don't care how you get there. Just make sure that you're meeting the standards and that we can justify the credit. So teachers get to teach what they want. We right now we have an advisory class. It's, it's one class with two teachers that allows uh, for multiple credits to be awarded. And um, they're teaching um, Mardi, Mardi Gras Indian history and how to bead. And within that, they're, they're earning chemistry credit, they're earning fine art credit, they're earning English credit, and a world geography credit. But it's centered around Mardi Gras Indians and the culture and the influences, and, and they're able to travel around the world with that and, and really explore. Um, a few years ago, I, uh, I co-taught um, with one of my teachers during the summer a comparative religion class. And so we literally took high school students around the world and explored different religions and uh, including including voodoo. And uh, you would be surprised as all of the, all of the mysticism around New Orleans and voodoo. My students were afraid uh, when we went to uh, a voodoo <laughs> temple and we had a voodoo priestess come in and talk to us. We even made voodoo dolls and they were I mean, they were afraid the whole time but it was fun and they were opened up and they, they saw things that they didn't know. And then even the so many commonalities around religion uh, around the world, they just were, their eyes were open bigger. So we get to do stuff like that. And, and so the other part of it is, is we train really hard around restorative justice um, because most folks who are in education have not been in schools where restorative justice is the only way that we practice discipline. Many schools, it's an option, 
at our school is the only way. So we do suspend students, but we only do it as a means to say, can you give me a day to get all of the details and make a plan for how the community is going to address this together? So we don't suspend long. Most suspensions are two days max. It's weighted according to what actually happened and what we need to do next. And, um, and so we, uh, we just don't use the practices of traditional schools. So we don't do detention. Um, you're not going to write sentences on the board or anything like that. But you are going to always be called into a conversation, even if you don't want that. So we train teachers and train our staff around how do you have a conversation with the kid about an incident that happened in their in their in their class in the hallway or whatever. So we ask basic questions like, "Can you tell me what happened? Can you tell me how you felt as this was going on? Uh, who was involved? What can you take ownership for? Like, I know that that these things happen, but can you tell me what part can you own up for? And then we talk about how do we make things right? What do you need to make things right? What do you need from others in order to make things right? And okay, so quick, quick question. Uh, what, if, what if we, um, the student says, I was doing nothing wrong. The teacher was just being a jerk or something worse. What, what do you, how do you address that? So, so we take time individually with the students and then we bring everybody together. So, so we sit in a circle and each person gets to go through those, those questions and give their answers. And, and what I found is, is that we will start out in a place like that. I wasn't doing anything. The teacher was picking on me. But when the other person begins to tell the details of what happened, the, the student generally will, will speak up and say, no, that's not how it went that uh, you're leaving something out, you're telling it wrong, which then opens the door to have that fuller conversation. The other side of it is having a, a student. So imagine that you've been in traditional school your whole life and all you've been is always told what your punishment was gonna be because of your behavior. You were told how wrong you were and you're always having something done to you. Then all of a sudden you come to a school where they're asking to do things with you. So you're telling me that you you want to hear my voice or uh, you want to know how I feel. Well, if I've lived my whole life not doing that, then now that becomes the place of conflict. Why are you asking me to talk? I've never, you know, no adults don't care about how I feel. So we have to do a lot of training with kids uh, about how to express themselves, how to self-advocate, how to speak up for yourself, how to properly convey what you felt, even though you know, other people might receive it as you're being angry, but, but it's actually a process of trying to sort through how the incident made me feel that sometimes looks like anger, but really is just expression. So we, we teach adults how to do that. We also teach kids how to do that in order for us to be able to implement restorative practices. And listen, restorative justice doesn't work in the initial moment, but when you continue to practice how to do it, because it's a practice, it's, it's not just a thing to do. It's actually something you practice over and over. But once you do it over time, it changes the way that you think about your struggles or you think about the harm that was done. And then it all, the accountability of us having to sit in front of each other and talk about it increases over time. And, and we have seen great success in students participating in that. And when they graduate, 
if you go on YouTube and type in uh, Net Central City Lights Camera Action, you'll see our senior videos and you can listen to our seniors themselves talk about how when they came, we were always saying they, we want to talk, we want to talk and they didn't want to talk. But when they leave, they're thanking us because we've taught them a skill that they didn't have and being able to express themselves to others. Well, and also you're providing ears, somebody who does care what they have to say, which has got to be unbelievable for so many students, for you to sit down and go, okay, tell me what was going on. Because So uh, I, I will say that okay. like one of the most powerful responses to that particular feeling is repeating back what the person said to you. Mm-hmm. And so we teach teachers how to do that, how to ask a kid, how do you feel? And the kid tells you, and, and then you say, okay, this is what I hear you say. And you repeat it back. And then you ask them, is that, is that what you're conveying? Is that what you, what you mean? And they will tell you, no, that's not what I mean. And then they'll say it again. And then you can clarify because a part of feeling heard is knowing that the person understands what you're saying. And right. so we teach that skill of repeating back. And even with my six and seven and 10 year old, I do that all the time. What I hear you saying is, and, and in an effort to make sure that they know that I am actively listening. So there are movements around restorative justice and restorative practices in schools all around the country. Um, and they, they look a little bit different depending on where, where it is. Here in New Orleans, um, we were really the first high school to say that we're using restorative justice as our guide. And we're doing it with the toughest students. We replicated from one school to two. We acquired the third high school, which is um, that high school is going to be moving to New Orleans East because a large amount of our students come from the East and they travel into the city. Uh, That can sometimes be a two hour bus ride. So we're actually moving one of our schools to where we have a large population of students and we're increasing our services. So we have partnered with YEP, which is the Youth Empowerment Project, another organization that's on the same street as my school that's focusing on youth um, advocacy. And we are we are providing more services for them, including we're, we're in the process of fundraising to build a residential facility because we have a lot of kids who are transient, but they don't and they don't have anywhere to go but they wanna be connected to schools. So we're gonna do a residential facility. We're also um, bringing healthcare directly to them. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of our students miss school because they're going to doctor's offices and going to doctor's appointments. And so we're bringing that to the campus. So our, our idea of expansion is creating more seats for availability, but it also is the increase of available services that students can access because they are connected to school. Right now, all of our schools are under-enrolled. So we know that that there are more kids in the city of New Orleans who could benefit from from our environment, um, but they're not coming to school. They're they're not enrolling. And families really right now aren't pushing kids towards school like they need to. So the seats are available. Um, Many of you may have seen the, um, the horrific murder of uh, the lady on the Enville in Mid-City. Her car was carjacked. Um, As she was getting out of it, 
she got stuck in the seatbelt and the student, the, the young people drove away and ended up uh, ripping her arm off and she died on the scene. Um, those, those are our students, the, the age of those students, the demographic of those students, um, those are our kids. So we know that they're out there. We know that they're doing things like that. They're getting involved in drugs. They're getting involved in gun trafficking. They're doing these carjackings and it ends them up incarcerated. And so the reason that we are pushing our environments and, and why we have remained um, in fidelity to our mission is because we know that if, if we could get those kids in a different environment and in a different community, that through restorative practices and restorative justice and just a tremendous amount of meeting their unmet needs, we can help them to begin to see the world differently and to take ownership in their responsibility to the world by first saying that we're going to stand in solidarity with you so that you know that you can do something different. All right, that concludes this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Mr. Justin Ross Hillard. Thank you also to Dr. Mark Stoll for providing that audio recording. If you like what you've been hearing, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast platform. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening to this installment of Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. For more information, please visit our website at cat.zula.edu. That's C-A-T dot X-U-L-A dot E-D-U. Until next time, keep on teaching, learning, and everything else.